The darkness was increasing rapidly, as the whole sky had clouded and threatened thunder. There was still some desultory shelling. When the relief had taken over from them, they set off to return to their original line as best they could. Bourne, who was beaten to the wide, gradually dropped behind, and in trying to keep the others in sight, missed his footing and fell into a shell hole. By the time he had picked himself up again, the rest of the party had vanished, and uncertain of his direction, he stumbled on alone. He neither hurried nor slackened his pace. He was light-headed, almost exalted, and driven only by the desire to find an end. Somewhere, eventually, he would sleep. He almost fell into the wrecked trench, and after a moment's hesitation turned left, caring little where it led him. The world seemed extraordinarily empty of men, though he knew the ground was alive with them. He was breathing with difficulty. His mouth and throat seemed to be cracking with dryness, and his water bottle was empty. Coming to a dugout, he groped his way down, feeling for the steps with his feet. A piece of Wilson canvas hung across the passage, but, twisted aside, rasped his cheek, and a few steps lower his face was enveloped suddenly in the musty folds of a blanket. The dugout was empty. For the moment he collapsed there, indifferent to everything. Then, with shaking hands, he felt for his cigarettes, and putting one between his lips, struck a match. The light revealed a candle-end stuck by its own grease to the oval lid of a tobacco tin, and he lit it. It was scarcely thicker than a shilling, but it would last his time. He would finish his cigarette, and then move on to find his company. There was a kind of bank or seat excavated in the wall of the dugout, and he noticed first the tattered remains of a blanket lying on it, and then, gleaming faintly in its folds, a small metal disc reflecting the light. It was the cap on the cork of a water bottle. Sprawling sideways, he reached it. The feel of the bottle told him it was full, and uncorking it, he put it to his lips and took a great gulp, before discovering that he was swallowing neat whiskey. The fiery spirit almost choked him for the moment. In his surprise, he even spat some of it out. Then, recovering, he drank again, discreetly but sufficiently, and was meditating a more prolonged appreciation when he heard men groping their way down the steps. He recorked the bottle, hid it quickly under the blanket, and removed himself to what might seem an innocent distance from temptation. Three Scotsmen came in. They were almost as spent and broken as he was. That he knew by their uneven voices. But they put up a show of indifference, and were able to tell him that some of his mob were on the left, in a dugout about fifty yards away. They too had lost their way, and asked him questions in their turn. But he could not help them, and they developed among themselves an incoherent debate on the question of what was the best thing for them to do in the circumstances. Their dialect only allowed him to follow their arguments imperfectly, but under the talk it was easy enough to see the irresolution of weary men seeking in their difficulties some reasonable pretext for doing nothing. It touched his own conscience, and throwing away the butt of his cigarette, he decided to go. The candle was flickering feebly on the verge of extinction, and presently the dugout would be in darkness again. Prudence stifled in him an impulse to tell them of the whisky. Perhaps they would find it for themselves. It was a matter which might be left for providence or chance to decide. 
He was moving towards the stairs when a voice muffled by the blanket came from outside. Who are down there? There was no mistaking the note of authority, and Bourne answered promptly. There was a pause, and then the blanket was waved aside, and an officer entered. He was Mr. Clinton, with whom Bourne had fired his course at Tregethley. Hello, Bourne, he began, and then, seeing the other men, he turned and questioned them in a soft, kindly voice. His face had the greenish pallor of crude beeswax. His eyes were red and tired. His hands were as nervous as theirs, and his voice had the same note of over-excitement. But he listened to them without a sign of impatience. "'Well, I don't want to hurry you men off,' he said at last. "'But your battalion will be moving out before we do. The best thing you can do is to cut along to it. They're only about a hundred yards further down the trench. You don't want to straggle back to camp by yourselves. It doesn't look well either.'